This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host for this interview. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Sarah Epler-Janda. Dr. Janda is a professor of history at Cameron University and is the author of Prairie Power, Student Activism, Counterculture, and Backlash in Oklahoma, 1962-1972, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press just last year in 2018. Welcome to the New Books Network, Sarah. Thank you. To begin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your background? And specifically, how did you become interested in history as a profession? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I started out majoring in English. And I was in the middle of taking an English lit class. And we were reading um, a lot of Milton. And at the same time, I was taking a U.S. history survey course. And we were talking about Margaret Sanger and the birth control crusade. And it just sort of hit me that history was a much better fit for me, that I, I really enjoyed looking at social movements and broad change over time and efforts to affect change by different types of groups of people. And so as an undergraduate, I decided that I really wanted to pursue history. And then um, I decided to go on and get a PhD because I felt like I didn't know enough history, that like just getting a bachelor's degree, there, there's just an infinite amount to study and learn. And so I decided that not only did I want to learn as much as I possibly could, that, that I also really enjoyed opportunities to teach what I had learned to other people. I feel like for a lot of historians and people who work in history, there's this moment where you realize that what you're learning is just the tip of the iceberg and yes. it compels you to dive deeper and find out all the rest that's out there. Well, and the more you learn, the more you realize <laughs> you don't know. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, how did you become interested in the topic of this book in student protest and activism in uh, the 1960s in Oklahoma specifically? So I've long been interested in women in politics and different kinds of sort of self-perpetuated sense of identity and efforts to affect change. Um, and so I had worked on earlier projects related to women's history and, and activism but I, as a student of, of the 1960s in particular, I noticed that whenever I read stuff about hippies, it was always focused on uh, on the East or the West Coast. And I grew up in Oklahoma, and I grew up with hippie parents who were very different from the kinds of hippies that I read about on the East or West Coast. And, and their kind of network of friends and acquaintances, I thought that this is, is so different. I wonder if there's more to this story. 
And so the project actually started as an effort to better understand the hippie movement in Oklahoma and the extent to which it differed from hippies elsewhere in the United States. And then as I got further into that, which, which really took me much more into oral history, because it's, it's not like there were a lot of, of um, written primary sources that I could delve into, and no one had written about, about hippies in Oklahoma at that point. And so as I began the interviewing process, I started to encounter people that had also been involved in student activism on college campuses. And so that's what led me down the path of looking at student activism in addition to just, which is really what most of the book focuses on, actually. But that's what led me down the path of examining student activism. And the the further I got into the project, the more I realized that just as the hippie movement in Oklahoma differed from what we saw on either coast, so too did the student activism movement. And so that's where I really began to see something quite unique in Oklahoma, not that it's solely unique, but it is unique to a kind of Midwestern, Western sort of trend in student activism. And you mentioned uh, oral histories as being one of your primary source bases and methodologies. And I noticed a few Eplers quoted throughout the book, actually, and it must have been must have been uh, pretty fascinating to be able to do some research so close to home. Well, it was. It was a little daunting at first because, of course, you know, the first rule for historians is always objectivity and distance. And so we tend to be very suspicious, I think, intellectually of interviewing one's own family members. And so that that was a bit of a struggle for me. And I, I, I grappled with this even in the, the beginning of the book to try and indicate that a couple of the sources were, were quite close to home, my parents. Um, but on the other hand, I think I wouldn't have I wouldn't have ever conceived of this project if it hadn't been for my experiences growing up in Oklahoma with kind of off the grid hippie parents that were also quite conservative in some interesting ways. And so there there are some pitfalls to that, certainly. But but I think it adds something to the flavor of the book that I wouldn't have I wouldn't have had otherwise. I wouldn't have asked some of the questions that I ask if I hadn't had that that experience growing up in that kind of environment. Yeah, definitely. And and the last thing I'll say about that is, especially towards the end of the book, you have uh, several pictures of who I take to be your parents. And it was yes. really wonderful seeing them. It was sort of like flipping through a, a family album or a photo <laughs> album in some way. It was really, it was really nice. I really appreciated that. Oh, well, thank um, you. Let's, let's get into the book a little bit. And as you describe in the beginning, leftist activism has a longer history in Oklahoma than a lot of people might assume, considering the state's conservative reputation today. So could you tell us a little bit about the state's history of particularly rural protest in the late 19th and early 20th century? Sure. So Oklahoma does have this long history of radical politics, and a lot of that emerges shortly before and just after statehood. So in the early 20th century, there are all sorts of groups that are moving into um, what becomes Oklahoma. And so there's obviously long been a, a strong Native American population. Oklahoma becomes a haven for freedmen after the Civil War. You have also former slaves that had um, been held in slavery by the five tribes. You have people that are, are coming in from Arkansas and Texas and Kansas looking for fresh starts. And a lot of people that move into Oklahoma are doing so because they are incredibly poor. They're also often making rather dubious claims to property as they come into Oklahoma. 
And there's this sort of sense of desperation, I think, that, that is at the root of a lot of radical politics in early Oklahoma history. So that after statehood, which is 1907, after statehood, we see increasing numbers of people coming in as tenant farmers. And these are young, often illiterate, very poor people looking to carve out a life for themselves as farmers. And rent prices become exorbitant. They just rent rates on on property for tenant farmers continues to skyrocket. There's a a deep suspicion of landowners that that comes out of that. And a lot of kind of suspicion of government um, because of a sense that they weren't being protected or that they should have a right to, to occupy land. And where, where we really see this take hold is with the interest in the Socialist Party that emerges in Oklahoma. At one time, Oklahoma per capita had the largest Socialist Party uh, membership in the entire country. And that really happened because of frustration on the part of tenant farmers over economic inequality. And so the biggest element of activism in Oklahoma really takes root in 1917 during World War One after the Selective Service Act, where a lot of Oklahoma residents, so they're, you know, it's only 10 years after statehood. It's not like they have a strong state identity at this point, but many of them did have a strong commitment to survival and trying to take care of their families. And so they looked at the draft requirement in World War One as violating their their rights and undercutting their ability to not just support their families, but enable the survival of their families. And so there's a very strong anti-draft resistance going on in Oklahoma, often connected to the Socialist Party. And it's it's because of that rebellion and then the subsequent state crackdown on activism and protest that led to the significant demise and the power of the Socialist Party in Oklahoma. And so we don't thereafter you tend to see it not completely disappearing, but it certainly goes underground. I love this book's title. Prairie power is a very evocative phrase. And uh, I'm wondering if you could give us a definition of what prairie power is and how you differentiate it from other types of activism, particularly student activism that, as you said before, scholars usually point to having its focal points on maybe the West Coast or maybe in New York City. Sure. So the term itself um, originates by an SDS activist, Carl Davidson, who says he coined the term. And he coined it to differentiate from the kind of SDS activism that you see on either coast. And it's essentially this notion that the prairie power activists were not the straight-laced, short-haired, serious-minded, well-organized individuals that you see on either coast that the prairie power activists were kind of laid back, open to all kinds of new ideas. They were much more likely to experiment with drugs, be open to the hippie movement, um, and and take in this sort of idea that anyone was welcome in the movement. And so it comes to define a strain of activism that is very much midsection of the country. Uh, ultimately, University of Texas in Austin had the largest SDS membership, and they're kind of one of the defining symbols of 
prairie power activism. Robbie, Robbie Lieberman talks a lot about this idea of prairie power in the middle section of the country uh, in, in that book. And so anyway, that's, that's kind of where it comes from. So some of the activists at the time began, like Davidson began to kind of come up with this idea. Others, it's more after the fact where I'm looking back at their experience in the period and the contrast that they have with the more serious minded uh, people in the new left on the, especially on the East coast that you see, um, them saying, yes, okay, we, I wasn't familiar with this term in the 60s, but now as I look back, that that was my experience. That makes sense. So that's that's where the concept comes from. I feel like uh, Midwestern history is sort of having a bit of a moment right now. And so reading this book, I, I found myself nodding a lot, thinking like, yeah, of course that there was a specific uh, strain of activism going on in this time period, in this particular part of the country as well. It made a lot of sense to me in in this current historiographical moment that we're in. Oh, yes. No, I think so. And, I, you know, when you talk about the Midwest, it's it, it's always sort of weird because especially when you think about Texas in the Midwest, right? It's not exactly mm-hmm. in the mid, in the mid part of the country, but it's more about an, a shared set of ideas and values that you see manifested across the entire midsection of the country. And and that, I think, brings a very different flavor than, than what you see on either coast. Describe the landscape of higher education in Oklahoma in the 1950s and 1960s. What are and what become the important sites of protest and what differentiates the different campuses and the different student bodies at the various colleges and universities across the state? Sure. So, I mean, in the 1950s, there there's very little activism going on and there's not in fact some of the the first activism that we began to see is really in response to a sense that there was no controversy and there there was no debate to the first underground student newspaper in in the state of Oklahoma um, emerges in 1962 and it's it's not a, a politically left leaning you know these these are students that just they want debate and they want to explore controversial topics. And so I think the origins of student activism in higher ed actually comes from that. Another core component um, across the state is a growing sense of in loco parentis challenges where there's a growing questioning of the parental-like authority that universities held over their student body. Now, I, I should say that there's much more activism. I mean, the University of Oklahoma by far has more activism than any other campus in the state. And what what I tried to do in the book is look a lot at who the FBI looked looked at in, in COINTELPRO and see where they thought activism was taking place. So Oklahoma ranged from having activism that was very muted to a a complete absence of activism on many campuses. I think it's it's membership, you know, mandatory ROTC that causes some students to begin questioning what's going on. It's a frustration over a lack of controversial topics being debated that cause students to become politically active. The University of Oklahoma is long considered to be the more liberal campus in the United States. I'm sorry, not in the United States, in Oklahoma. And so uh, certainly people from around the United States would look at Oklahoma and think, well, there can't be very much uh, you know, liberal politics going on there in the 60s. 
And that's true in, in the sense that what happens at the University of Oklahoma will be mild in comparison to what's going on in other states. Um, but it certainly takes this significant bent and it, it, it's quite different from what's happening even at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater. And it's different still from what's happening at some of the smaller regional institutions in the state. The FBI had informants on half a dozen college campuses in Oklahoma because they were so fearful that some kind of activism might actually emerge. Tell us a little bit more and a little bit more in depth about the early days of student activism in Oklahoma, particularly at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. Uh, For instance, where and when and why did students found the first uh, SDS chapter in the state? Sure. So I, I think part of what happens is I mentioned the you know, first underground student newspaper in Oklahoma is at the University of Oklahoma Free Press. And it starts in the spring of 1962 by a group of ROTC cadets who are just wanting some kind of debate to take place. Uh, they all graduate and go away. So there's not a direct link between that and this emerging activism that comes. But what happens is there began to be students at the University of Oklahoma who seek each other out, who are interested in more diverse debates and reading. So there's a there's a Marxist reading club that forms, for example. And a lot of what they're doing is not really exploring Marxism, although that's a topic. It's more critiquing the world around them and talking about new ideas And it's out of this Marxist reading group that the first SDS chapter forms in Oklahoma, which is in May of 1963. And so it's it's a very small group. They decide that they're going to form a chapter of SDS. And at the time, they do so in a a way that is, is fully in compliance with university requirements at OU, where they they form it in May, but it's not until the following fall semester where they do the paperwork for becoming an official student organization. And they're they're really just interested in trying to make sure that um, they're engaged in what they call participatory democracy, that they are going to get involved to try and, and improve the world around them. What a lot of early members of SDS had in common in Oklahoma with with SDS more broadly is their exposure to the civil rights movement, whether they directly participated or they simply followed coverage of it. That was a first awakening of substantial systematic inequality across the country and in their local communities. And so I think that certainly, especially in 1963, um, was a point that that pulled a lot of these politically minded um, individuals together at the University of Oklahoma. And almost immediately, school officials become very suspicious of <laughs> even this very, uh, you know, mild form of student political activism and very mild form of protest, if you could even really call it that. It's more just questioning. Um what were their concerns? Uh, why, why was this so such, such a such a scare for them? And then how did they react more broadly to to these these small student movements? Well, and so this is where we really see a sharp contrast between the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University. So 
at the University of Oklahoma, as soon as the paperwork is completed by the officers of SDS and sent up the line, immediately the dean says, okay, this might be a potential problem and notifies the president that there could be a, a an issue that this might, not that they want to stop it, but that they could receive some criticism just for the existence of, of an SDS chapter. The president of OU at the time, George Lynn Cross, had been around since the 1940s. He was a very successful president. And I think this matters because he had the ability to um, shield the students, although I don't think they realized it at the time. But his take on SDS was that if the university came out and opposed it, then membership would increase tenfold. If they just kind of quietly watched it and let it play out, he didn't think membership would ever be very substantial. And he was, in fact, correct. Um, And so they monitored it, but did not actively step in to try and, and stop the existence of SDS at OU, at least not in the um, in, in the first several years of its existence. Whereas Oklahoma State University, you know, and they Oklahoma State University had at any one time three members, four members, never more than five or six members. It doesn't look like, but the president of the university there, Robert Com, was very opposed to SDS and never allowed it to have official university status and tried, as he did in, in a range of areas, to stifle any sort of student student dissent, which ultimately backfired on him. And what about outside the university setting? How did parents and non-university affiliated locals within Oklahoma react to student activism throughout the decade that you cover in the book? Well, and I think aside from some of the surveillance, this is the most disturbing part of, of what I found. The reaction was largely hostile in a way that I think even in today's politics is is hard to fathom. The number of people who wrote, who would always describe themselves as, you know, I'm a good taxpaying citizen of the state of Oklahoma and I object to this, um, the existence of these organizations. There's a lot of vehement hate in the language used to describe the students and describe what punishments they deserved. And and so the general sense by a lot of people who wrote letters to oppose the existence of either student peaceful gatherings of protest or organizations like SDS is that as a taxpaying citizen of Oklahoma, I have the right to decide where my money goes, and it should not be going to support a university that allows this kind of organization to exist. And invariably, communism is linked to any kind of student dissent, and that's used as a justification to try and get students expelled from school, to try and have um, organizations shut down, to try and come up with other ways of exposing student activism and make it difficult for them. There are people who write in suggesting that students should be quietly flunked out of their classes if they're identified as having shown up for one for a protest. Uh, there are people who suggest that the National Guard should come out with uh, live ammunition and fixed bayonets, as one man says, hmm. anytime students gather to protest. 
And I think what, you know, one of the interesting differences between the University of Oklahoma and Oklahoma State University is that at, at OU, I think the protesters in some ways were a little bit more insulated. Like they had no idea that George Lane Cross was repeatedly tirelessly kind of going to bat to sort of stand between them and the public who criticized them or state legislators who would say, can't we do something about this, this problem of, of students for a democratic society at OU? And he, you know, would repeatedly write letters saying they've broken no laws. They've done, they violated no university policy. We may not agree with their politics, but there is nothing we can do. Whereas in contrast at Oklahoma State University in Stillwater, President Kahn basically came to decide that anytime students acted in a way or spoke in a way or wanted to bring speakers to campus that violated or contradicted the established norms of the society of Oklahoma that supported the institution, that that really wasn't protected speech. And so the more he cracked down on curiosity and the desire of students to just ex- have this free exchange of uh, exchange of ideas, the more activists he created. So it's a very different kind of atmosphere. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah. Um, the book mostly focuses on students and, um, to some extent, government officials and university administrators, but faculty also play a role. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how faculty reacted to student activism and particularly at Oklahoma State to the reaction of student activism uh, from the administration. Well, I think they were deeply troubled. And the best example of that is almost the entire Department of Sociology resigned in protest of violations of free speech on the part of the administration. And a lot of faculty tried to defend the rights of students. And, and you know, one of the things that's interesting about University of, or sorry, Oklahoma State University is that uh, to a person of the people I, I interviewed for the project, they all say, you know, we, we, weren't, we weren't radicals. We, we, we didn't start off as activists. We just wanted to be able to hear a free exchange of ideas. And so the, the biggest issue at Oklahoma State University was really over free speech, where they wanted to listen to alternative views. They wanted to bring speakers into campus. And when the university decided to crack down and not allow a whole range of speakers to come to campus, that's what really ignited a backlash from the student body. And so you get these massive demonstrations against the president and against this policy that that wouldn't have happened otherwise. And the faculty that tried to go to bat for the students and protect them ended up in very precarious situations. And and so it was um, alarming to many of the students 
who went through this to see what happened to the faculty and the, the persecution of them and threats of graduate students who always occupy that kind of in-between status. But graduate students at Oklahoma State University who were graders or research assistants or TAs were told that if they attended one of these demonstrations in front of the library in favor of free speech, that they would lose their funding. They would lose their TA ships or their grader ships. And so it was a very troubling time for a lot of the student body there. You mentioned that in writing this book, you often followed the document trail left by the FBI as a means of figuring out where these centers of student activism work. Can you tell us about the extent of the federal government's involvement in Oklahoma at these universities? What did COINTELPRO look like at Oklahoma State or the University of Oklahoma, for instance? Well, so this is a complicated question in the sense that there are, I think, two separate things that were going on with COINTELPRO. One is what they actually did and the other is what they reported in their in their official reports that were sent to FBI headquarters and so there's a lot of pressure on FBI agents in Oklahoma City to deliver and one of the things that that becomes apparent is that J Edgar Hoover had become so obsessed with destroying new left organizations that he's monitoring reports that are coming in, even from field offices like Omaha or Oklahoma City. And FBI agents are told that, in fact, there's a great exchange where they file a report in the Oklahoma City field office and kind of an end of the school year report where they say, yeah, it looks like there are about three members of SDS at Oklahoma State University. Seems like it's basically defunct there. Nothing's going on. University of Oklahoma has maybe 12 to 15 members right now, but they're breaking for the summer and they have no radical activities planned. So we have no counterintelligence plan in mind at this time. They submit their report and J. Edgar Hoover takes the time to write back himself and say, actually, the the fact that you've identified that there are two chapters of SDS in Oklahoma means that they need to be eradicated. I look forward to hearing your report for how you're going to do this. And so it, it really put a lot of pressure on those field offices to try and deliver. They had informants at probably half a dozen universities in the state. And it varied in terms of the tactics that they used and the kind of success that they had. So um, they worked actively to prevent the creation of a chapter of SDS at what today is the University of Central Oklahoma and Edmond, which is kind of a suburb of Oklahoma City. Uh, it's the largest regional school in the state. At the school, Cameron University, where I teach, they looked at Cameron, which was an incredibly conservative campus at the time, as sort of a poster child for how communities could make their jobs easier. There was a planned protest that students had put together at Cameron to protest actually just the administration. And the administration found out about it. And so they notified all of the parents that this was going to happen. 
and the parents intervened and the demonstration did not take place. And there's an FBI report where they talk about how this is this is great. This is a perfect example of communities kind of coming together to stop protests before they happen. And so what you're starting to see is all of these different kinds of protest blurring together, that there's this great generalization. So whether it's students who have a particular issue with the university administration, whether they're fighting for civil rights, whether they're challenging in loco parentis, whether it's opposition to the war in Vietnam, which does become the most substantial issue for SDS, or whatever it is that they're, they're protesting, or if they just want free speech, all of these individuals get lumped together. They all get kind of labeled communistic um, and are treated the same by many university officials, I think with the exception of the University of Oklahoma. And as elsewhere throughout the United States, the murder of four students at Kent State University in 1970 really changes the tone of these student protests that are going on across the country and changes the dynamic between administration officials and student bodies, including at universities throughout Oklahoma. So can you tell us what happens at these Oklahoma institutions in the aftermath of that tragedy? Sure. So I I think there's a lot of, of shock initially. Fear, second, and third, and perhaps most importantly, it awakens a sense of injustice that hadn't been there for a lot of students who hadn't considered themselves activists, who hadn't engaged in any kind of protest, peaceful or otherwise. Um, Several schools around the state of Oklahoma held silent vigils to those who were killed at Kent State. And it's troubling to think about because I think in, you know, certainly in recent American history, you can imagine peaceful vigils at a site where people have been killed or a silent vigil offsite that where people are, are respectfully mourning for the loss of life. And that act stimulated hostility and fear um, and a desire to prevent more silent vigils from happening. And so it's really the University of Oklahoma where we see the most tense response to the death of those students at Kent State. Other universities and and, and Oklahoma State University, they manage more through threat and force to prevent any kind of ongoing demonstration um, protesting what had happened to the students at Kent State. But at the University of Oklahoma, tensions run really high, and there's a lot of fear of something happening to students who protest. And I think, you know, one of the things, even though a lot has been written on the time period that, that I think is important to remember is a lot of these young students, whether they had reason to be afraid or not, were afraid, and they were afraid that even as they engaged in perfectly legal expressions of dissent, that they could be killed. And that's a really hard thing to grapple with for an 18, 19, 20-year-old student living in uh, the middle of the country in in 1970. And so the University of Oklahoma is actually interesting in terms of how they end up responding to the desire of students to protest um, throughout early May 
uh, what had happened at, at Kent State. And one of the things that happens is there's an early altercation between students and law enforcement where students had started by, they were kind of, you know, gathering, they were protesting an ROTC practice. They were, they were getting ready for their end of the year banquet and parade. It begins pretty peacefully, just some kind of mild joking, a little bit of heckling. More students begin together uh, and campus security becomes concerned because they're worried that the more students gather, you know, the more people you have coming together, it could quickly turn and become volatile. Um, they've got state troopers nearby in case they need backup. And a student pulls out what is believed to be a, a Viet Cong flag and waves it. There's some disputes even today as to whether it is a Viet Cong flag or not. But anyway, it's a red flag. He waves it. Campus security move in to arrest him. and everything kind of explodes in that moment. And what what ends up happening is a group of students, they surround the police car. Uh, they, they won't let it move forward. They let the air out of the tires. They Somebody lights a rag and tries to stick it in the gasoline tank, which obviously wouldn't have done their friend any favors of one that had been arrested for waving the flag. Uh, so they're not, you have kind of a, a bit of a mob mentality setting in. And at that point, point in, in all of this, one of the campus police officers gun goes missing and they have no idea where it was. And so there's this moment where they're worried, okay, what, what will happen next? Does a, does a student have it? Do they mean harm to law enforcement? And they end up, somebody finds the gun and gives it back to the police officer. So that, that crisis is averted. Uh, when the Troopers had come in for backup. They ended up hitting several students with clubs, trying to get the crowd to disperse. So there are several students that have minor injuries coming out of that. But the, the significance, so this first part of the story mirrors what happened at a lot of universities across the country. But what's unique about the University of Oklahoma is the response. Uh, Bill Jones, who is head of campus security at the University of Oklahoma, is perhaps most responsible for this. He decides it was it was a mistake to arrest the student and take the flag. They should have just left them alone because then it magnified the problem. And so he decides to come up with a plan for working with the students on campus to allow a kind of managed protest. And so he goes and he addresses the student body He's even taboos. He introduces himself as the the chief pig um, of the university, trying to kind of you know meet them where they are, so to speak, and really works to develop a plan where the students are going to be able to protest without being in danger. And so he, along with the head of the ROTC cadre, uh, Leroy Land, work together to create an environment where students are able to protest for this week in May following the Kent State shootings without being injured. And the way, the number one way to keep students from being injured on the college campus is to make sure that no outside law enforcement are brought in. The governor of Oklahoma, Dewey Bartlett, was very eager to send in the National Guard to break up any any gathering of students um, that, that even marginally resembled a protest. And so leadership at OU decides if, if that happens, if outside entities are brought in, students are going to be hurt and probably killed. 
and protecting student lives becomes their primary focus. So I think in, in that way, there, there's a really interesting element of what happens at the University of Oklahoma that, that's different from any other institution in the country that, that I'm aware of in the time period. Yeah, the story that you tell, particularly at the University of Oklahoma, really complicates the kind of students versus administration narrative that would be really easy to tell because it's a lot more complicated than that. Yes. And the, the story of the of I think you said his name was Bill Jones um, was a really interesting one. He comes across as you know not to get too effusive about it, but almost like a hero in a lot of ways for the way that he handles the situation. Well, I I think so, and I also think that that Leroy Land does as well because I mean this was a guy that had served in the Korean War, it served in World War II and and Vietnam, um, and his last sort of duty assignment is to come to the University of Oklahoma. And so no one understands it. And he defends the students in the aftermath of it. He writes to the governor and, and is trying to explain that nobody out off of a university campus can fully understand the turmoil, turmoil that students are going through and their need to express their sadness and their anger and their frustration and their disillusionment. And it, it's so different, right, than, than, than how we typically think of university administrations responding to student activism, particularly after Kent State, where you have the National Guard sent in 25 different times around the country and over 400 universities and colleges shut down as a result of protest following Kent State. Yeah. And uh, you have this great picture of Land in the in the book, and he looks almost straight out of central casting, like almost esque <laughs> And you, you wouldn't expect him, you know, not to not to pigeonhole the poor guy, but you wouldn't expect him to, to have that kind of stance because he looks so much like the kind of prototypical, you know, authority figure in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting hearing his story. Okay. Part of the countercultural movement in the 1960s and the 1970s was, of course, a youth backlash against social norms, was the hippie movement. So tell us about hippies and hair and the politics of both in Oklahoma, because there were hippies in Oklahoma. I mean, the Grateful Dead played a classic show in 1973 in Oklahoma City. So there were hippies there, but that's sort of part of Oklahoma's history that's often missed. So tell us more about that. Right. So I think that... Part of what happens is you have these young people who begin questioning, you know, why is it that we have to go to church every Sunday and wear our hair short and we're just training to kind of get jobs and become part of the machine. And so there is this kind of growing discontent with that. And, and so the, the part I've described thus far is, is similar to what's happening across the country, although Oklahoma, of course, is in the Bible Belt. So church attendance is a bit higher in Oklahoma uh, than on the east or the west coast during this time period. But I, I think what starts out is this rejection of a really, in many respects, I think it's a desire to make older people uncomfortable. Well, what do you mean men shouldn't wear floral shirts? Or what do you mean men shouldn't have long hair? And so there's there's certainly some of that. I think one of the distinguishing characteristics in Oklahoma is that a lot of the hippies in Oklahoma, I mean, some of them are are, are similar to what you'll see elsewhere, but but there's also kind of a, a and I hate to use the word conservative because it has so many other connotations, but there's kind of a small C conservative element within the hippie movement, which is 
Yes, it's a rejection of, of mainstream society, but it's not rejection in a vacuum. It's a rejection of their parents' generation, but not their grandparents' generation. In other words, for many of them, there's a desire to connect back to earlier traditions in in the state. And so the idea of kind of, you know, going back to the land, which you'll certainly find in among other hippie um, activists across the country, but it, but it's sort of this idea of looking for authenticity. And that I think is where you see a parallel between Prairie Power student activists and, um, and hippies, which is a desire, and I'm not suggesting that they necessarily find authenticity, but 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 I do think that part of the movement, an earnest part of both hippie efforts and new left student activism, was was really about claiming authenticity, finding something of substance, and a disillusionment with the world that they had inherited from their parents' generation. In Oklahoma, because there weren't a whole lot of hippies, they were easier to track. Um, They are certainly ridiculed. And one of the interesting things with hippies is that just as all students who protested anything are lumped together, hippies are often lumped into that group, too. And from a law enforcement standpoint, the greatest interest in hippies was often in figuring out what what information they might have about anti-war protest or about SDS. They're regularly questioned about that. And after 1968 in the Chicago Convention, a common question for anyone who stopped with long hair in Oklahoma is, were you in, were you in Chicago in 68? And so they, they kind of connect all of these things together. If there is, I always ask my my guests uh, this this question at the end. Uh, it's not an easy question, so bear with me. Sure. But if if there is one takeaway that you hope readers come away from this book with, what might that be? I think it's about what happens when dissent is stifled, because I think that what happens at Oklahoma State University is a great example of that. We have a lot of debates in the United States today about free speech. And today there's a a greater sense, certainly among conservatives, that in the 60s, it was about protecting the right of free speech on the political left. And today we see instances where free speech on the side of the political right is more likely to be violated. And, and whether or not one believes that is, isn't so much the point as it is to say that greater social problems, greater divisions erupt in free speech, meaningful exchange of ideas, across political perspective is stifled. And so I think that that's one of the, the main takeaways. This book has been out for about a year now. Um, can you give us a preview of what you've been working on since then? Any next projects that you have coming down the pike? Sure. So I've got a couple of projects. I'm, I'm working on a co-edited volume on women's activism in Oklahoma uh, with a colleague of mine, Patty Laughlin, who's at the University of Central Oklahoma trying to sort of reveal varied roles that women have played and trying to affect change over the course of the last few centuries. The other is that actually grew out of the project Prairie Power is I'm looking at a group of anti-draft tenant farmers 
in Oklahoma during World War One. And my interest in this came out of, of research where the Students for a Democratic Society chapter at University of Oklahoma, one of their newspapers that, that they create, uh, the last one that they create, in fact, is called The Jones Family's Grandchildren. And they named the newspaper after a group identified as the Jones family, which is a group of socialist tenant farmers in World War One that obstructed the draft and um, were several of, of whom were sentenced to 10 years in prison for obstructing the draft. So I got interested in the, in the in the connection that they are that this group of activists in 19 in the 1960s is making back to this earlier group. And they say um, repeatedly in their paper, look, we are the children of the Jones family. And they connect opposition to World War uh, I with their own opposition to Vietnam. And so anyway, I'm, I'm working on the trial of this group of protesters during World War One to try and understand conceptions of masculinity at, as part of draft resistance. We typically see draft resistors characterized as feminine, um, shirking their masculine responsibilities. And yet what this particular group had planned is their protest of the draft centered on being able to stay home and provide for their families and protect them. And their sense that if they were drafted and went away to fight a war, they wouldn't be able to take care of their families. And so they concoct these plans to um, destroy bridges and power lines and so forth to keep agents from coming in and physically taking away draft age men to force them to fight. So it's a very interesting conception of masculinity uh, that, that emerges in the lines of these trial transcripts of, of what they saw themselves doing. That sounds great. And you mentioned the Jones family in your book in the context of that newspaper um, and a little bit at the beginning of the book. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to read more about those people. Those, that sounds really interesting. So I'm glad to hear that, that you're working on that project. Oh, well, good. Thank you. Sarah Epler-Janda is a professor of history at Cameron University, and her newest book is Prairie Power, Student Activism, Counterculture, and Backlash in Oklahoma, 1962-1972, which came out with the University of Oklahoma Press in 2018. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Sarah. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. 